It's been a few months since we last looked at the book of Joshua. But uh, as Andy uh, Longway's on away on holiday just now, we're circling back, as it were, to chapter 10 to pick up where we left off. But before we do so, we need to set the scene for our study together this morning. Every now and again, um, some of our family watch Doctor Who on TV. And if you're a Doctor Who fan, you'll know that the, the program is sometimes bookended uh, with a little cameo glimpse at the beginning of what's gone before and at the end of what's uh, coming up next week. And uh, that recap of the previous episode is to help you understand the plot in this week's show. Well, to get the most out of the passage that we're looking at this morning, we need to do that. We need to go back and revisit briefly two previous episodes of our series in Joshua. Some of you have been meeting regularly with us since March of last year when we started this, but others may not have been here all the time and you may be visiting us today. So if this is familiar ground to you, then please bear with me. But if you were not here, or if you were but you've forgotten, then I trust this will be of some help. The first thing to remind ourselves is something that we considered in chapter 6 when we looked at how the walls of Jericho fell down. The book of Joshua is a book which has an overarching theme about how God keeps and fulfills his promises to us. And to understand that, you need to go right back to Genesis 15, for there we find God making a covenant with Abraham. And at that time, God foretold that Abraham's descendants would become kings in Egypt. But along with that somber news, there was a wonderful promise of what would follow. For God promised that after 400 years, They would return to the promised land, the very place where God was making a covenant with Abraham. And that's what happened, isn't it? Israel moved to Egypt following God's providential intervention in the life of Joseph. And then subsequently, centuries later, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt through God's intervention when God sent plagues and separated the waters of the Red Sea to provide a means of escape. And back in Genesis 15, God gives a reason for the delay of 400 years. He says it's because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. So for 400 years, the Amorites turned their back on God. They indulged themselves in lives which heap sin upon sin, idolatry, immorality. And for 400 years, the Lord restrained his judgment. Yet the Amorites continued to defy the living God. So God's judgment then was restrained for a season, but eventually the day of reckoning was to come. The promised land was to be taken from them, and given to Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel. 
Perhaps you feel a bit uncomfortable about that. Are you tempted to make a sort of subconscious comparison with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Perhaps you question the morality of a God who appears to condone brutality and genocide. Well, we'll think a little bit more about that um, next time. But for now, for now, the important thing to realize is that this judgment on the Canaanites, on the Amorites, is not an act of spite against them, but the universal consequence of rebelling against God. We're confronted here with a God, a Lord of heaven and earth, whose holiness is impeccable. A God who cannot look upon sin. As one minister has put it, the the passage here doesn't present us with the Lord versus the Canaanites, but with the Lord's holy hatred of sin. So this is the first thing we need to remember from our previous studies. God is holy, and Israel's conquest of the promised land was an act of judgment on the Amorites. This is a judgment which God had patiently deferred for 400 years. But now their sin was complete. Despite regular reminders, they'd neglected God for long enough. Their opposition to him had run its full course. God had given them time, but they'd squandered it. And now they had to face the consequence of their choice. God's just wrath was quite rightly being poured out on them just as it should be poured out on us all in response to our sin. But the second thing we need to remind ourselves is from chapter 9, which we looked at last time, albeit that was sort of four months ago. And there we read of the Gibeonites, who entered into an elaborate deception to convince Joshua to make a treaty with them, rather to put them to the sword. And you may recall, if you were here, or if you know the story, that by dressing in worn clothes and arriving with empty bags, they gave the impression that they'd come from a far country rather than being Amorites, neighbours who deserved God's judgment. Last time we saw how the Gibeonites succeeded in their ruse But we also saw that in a wonderful act of God's providence, he turned that sinful deception into an act of mercy toward them. See, the Gibeonites realized that they faced this judgment from God. The Gibeonites realized that they were sinners, that they'd set their lives against God, and that unless they turned to God, they faced a hopeless future. So what we saw in the story in chapter 9 was a germ of faith in these Gibeonites, even as small as a mustard seed. They didn't know how they could be saved, but once their deception had been exposed, they cast themselves on the mercy of God. Now, at no point does the Bible condone their deceit, quite the opposite. There was a wonderful irony in the ruse that the Gibeonites had employed. The Gibeonites, you remember, they they arrived as if they had nothing. 
They looked impoverished. They were dressed in rags. And that's exactly what they were. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, the prophet declares, We are all like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So unknowingly, you see, they were living out, they were demonstrating a spiritual truth. Before God, they really were impoverished. Before God, they really did have nothing to commend them. But having cast themselves on God's mercy, we saw how wonderfully God answered them. Treaty with Joshua was honoured, and they were to serve in the temple, bringing the wood for the sacrifices and the water for the priests. Each day then in the temple, they saw a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice which the Lord Jesus Christ would make when he died on the cross to atone for their deception. Each daily sacrifice was an illustration of how they could be spared from the wrath of God. So this is the second thing that we need to remind ourselves from our previous study. That the Gibeonites couldn't do anything to gain God's favour They couldn't offer anything to commend themselves to him. All they could do was cast themselves upon his mercy. But in doing so, they were wonderfully saved. They were shown the provision that God had made to enable their sin to be forgiven. And then they were given a place alongside their Hebrew brothers in the community of God's people. Well, that's a rather long introduction, but our points today will be uh, somewhat briefer. We're now going to come to the passage that we read earlier, Joshua 10, verses 1 to 15. And we look at it under three headings, new enemies, new friends, and a new intercessor. New enemies, new friends, and a new intercessor. So looking at new enemies first, let's have a look at verses 1 to 4. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. The Gibeonites, you see, were in a new relationship, for we're told here in verse 1, that they'd not only made peace with Israel, but they were described as being among them. You see, when, when the Gibeonites made their treaty with Joshua, it wasn't an armistice by which they agreed simply to avoid conflict, to lay down their arms. Neither did they li- agree to live as li- alongside one another in some sort of grudging coexistence, whereby they sort of agreed to disagree. 
What's more, it wasn't an agreement in respect of each other to have the right to make their own choices, as we might have in our own communities today. Now, what is here described is a radical change for the Gibeonites. For by making their peace with Joshua, they had forsaken their old life as Canaanites, as Amorites. And they'd chosen a new life, a different life among Israel. Those of you who are with us, when we looked at the story of Rahab in Joshua 2, you may recall that she underwent a similar transformation. She was also a Canaanite woman. She also deserved God's wrath. But she also cast herself on God's mercy. And in chapter 6, we read how she was saved from the destruction of Jericho and how Joshua brought her out to live in Israel And she became so integrated into that new community that we find her listed at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in the genealogy of Christ. So you see, what's described here about the Gibeonites reflects what happens to anyone who turns in faith to God. A radical change was required for the Gibeonites as they left the sin of their own life and turn to a new life serving the Lord. Their whole world had to change, and the life after the event was going to be radically different from that which went before. Apostle Paul describes this process in Colossians 1.13. He, the Father, has delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. See, for the Gibeonites, their whole allegiance had to change. They were literally passing from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into another kingdom, the kingdom of God's Son. Well, in undergoing this change of allegiance, the Gibeonites immediately made enemies. Their former allies, led by King Adonai Zedek, formed an alliance. And we read read, read in verse 5 that they gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. It's interesting, isn't it? The Canaanite kings didn't go to make war against Israel. They chose to attack those who had only recently been their allies. Former friends had quickly become foes. But this wasn't unexpected, was it? The experience of the Gibeonites is common to all who have true faith in God. It's the experience of us all who take a radical step and move from one kingdom to another. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There are two lessons I think we should take from the Gibeonites' experience here. The first is that if we turn in faith to God, 
then we will no longer feel at home in the world. If you're exploring the Christian faith this morning, then we have to be honest about about what real faith looks like. Repenting and following Christ will mean turning away from an old life. Because ultimately, that old life will no longer love you. And you will no longer love it. Indeed, Jesus says, that world representing your old life will hate you. Why then, you may say, would anyone want to follow Christ? To which the answer is the same as the answer found by the Gibeonites. For it says in Psalm 84, verse 10, One day in your courts, O Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the house in the tents of wickedness. Our 20s and 30s group uh, a little while ago looked at the American Gospel documentary. Others have seen it, and if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. But in that documentary, we meet a young woman whose name is Catherine. She has a rare genetic disorder. She has problems with virtually everything in her body. It's affected her nervous system. She has intestinal failure, and she's in constant pain. And her daughter has the same gene. And when, in the course of the documentary, it explains how she and her husband came to faith in the Lord Jesus and how they navigated that new faith through all the pain and suffering that she had to endure. And towards the end of the documentary, she says... I would not exchange any of this, the pain, the suffering, the illness, the disease. I would not exchange any of this for the joy of knowing God's forgiveness and grace. So too for the Gibeonites. Their former world hated them. But this was more than compensated by the privilege of serving their God, not just as a doorkeeper, but at the very heart of the temple. The second lesson which we need to take from the experience of the Gibeonites is that if we're following Christ, we can expect to face opposition. Jesus tells us that the world will hate us, and sometimes the hatred of the world will assemble itself against us, just as King Adonai Zedek assembled his armies against the Gibeonites. There isn't time to explore this topic properly this morning, but I'd leave you with the words for this. I would leave you just with the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Well, if that's uh, the new enemies that the Gibeonites found, they also found new friends. And we read of that in verses 6 and 7. 
And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Faced with this threat from King Adonai Zedek and his armies, we read that the men of Gibeon sent out a cry for help. They say that a friend in need is a friend indeed. And Joshua is indeed a friend to the Gibeonites when they have a need. Did you notice that Joshua doesn't hesitate to come to their aid? We're told in verse 9 that they marched all night in response to their cry for help. We're also told that they marched from Gilgal to Gibeon. This was a 19-mile hard slog uphill. Having reached Gibeon, they weren't able to rest either. They couldn't just sit down and catch their breath. If we're told that the battle commenced immediately... In verse 9, we're told that they came across their opposition suddenly. And then that immediate battle around Gibeon was followed by an ongoing skirmish as the Israelite soldiers pursued the fleeing Canaanites over the hill and down the other side. Indeed, it seems as if the battle progressed then for the rest of the day until the sun was beginning to set. See, having taken the Gibeonites into the community of Israel, Joshua spared nothing in protecting them. We're told in verse 7 that Joshua didn't send only part of his army because the Gibeonites were incomers. No, he sent all the people of war and all the mighty men of valor didn't delay because it was an inconvenient time. But he immediately went to their aid. Joshua and his men didn't balk at the immensity of the task. They willingly marched uphill at night in the dark. And they didn't demand an opportunity rest. But they entered the battle willingly and without delay and prosecuted it continuously until the task had been completed. Doesn't that challenge you? Does it challenge us? When we think about how we serve one another as fellow members of the church. In Galatians 6.2, Paul commands us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How good are you at doing that? What might be required to help a brother or a sister in Christ who's experiencing difficulty or is under attack? Someone might need our prayers. But we will we commit to do that and do it, even if it means we need to stay up all night or regularly. Someone might be ill. They could do with a visit. 
But will we travel if it means going all the way across London? Someone may be alone here in church, someone needing a friendly word. Will we spend time with them, even if it means missing out on friends after the service? Would you like to help with a tea rotor? (laughs) A practical thing that can help your brothers and sisters. It's worth taking a few minutes to think and have a moment of self-reflection to think about how we support our brothers and sisters in the community of Christ. Joshua, you see here, held nothing back in seeking to bear the burden of the Gibeonites. Lastly, then, we come to the new intercessor that the Gibeonites had. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. There's quite a few miracles recorded in the book of Joshua. Go back to uh, the beginning. The waters of the river Jordan stopped and a way made for the Israelites to cross over on dry land. Go on to chapter 6. The miracle of the walls of Jericho falling down. Why? Simply at a shout from the assembled men. But perhaps this here is the most extraordinary miracle of them all, isn't it? For these verses record that Joshua commanded both the sun and the moon to stop in their course in the sky. And furthermore, these verses go on to indicate that this is actually what happened. Well, various attempts have been made to explain the events recorded in this passage. Some have suggested that it's just poetic language that Joshua is using here. As the battle goes on, he realizes that there's still so much to be achieved, and he worries that they just won't have time before sunset. So some have suggested that it's Joshua praying something like, Lord, help me get the job done before it's too late. And these people argue that there's no change in the course of the earth or moon at all. But that Joshua's prayer was answered by the battle being completed before sundown. The second view is that Joshua's prayer was answered by an unusual alignment of the sun and moon in the sky, some sort of eclipse or uh, other event which the Israelites could take as a sign of God's blessing on them, while the Canaanites would see it as a bad omen, leaving to them to their discouragement and hastening their defeat. And the third view, which uh, Calvin supported, was that there really was a prolongation of daylight 
either through the slowing of the Earth's rotation or some other exceptional refraction of light. About eight years ago, there was a documentary which speculated what would happen if the Earth stopped rotating. And there were certainly some immense complications predicted. It's understandable then that some look to explain this passage in a way which the world would generally consider to be more credible. Possibly one of the first two of those explanations. But verse 14 in this passage says this, There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded a voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. We're told here that there's never been a day like it, before or since. It was a unique day, never to be repeated. Has there ever been another day when someone had a seemingly insurmountable task, only to pray to God that God would help them achieve it? I confess I can think of a few. Have there been any other days when strain... Astronomic alignments have taken place with people taking the events as omens for good or ill. Almost certainly there have been. To my mind, therefore, the real prolongation of daylight seems the most likely explanation, which is consistent with verse 14. A miraculous slowing of the earth for a brief period might have been might have had huge geological and climatic complications. But would it not have been within the power of a sovereign God to deal with these? Would it not be within the capabilities of the same God who changed the weather that day? Do you note in the passage, there were hailstones that fell from heaven, which killed the Canaanite troops. Not only is that a large hailstone, it's also incredibly accurately directed, isn't it? It killed the Canaanites, but not the Israelite soldiers who were fighting with them. I'm inclined to think so. The God who set the stars and the planets in the cosmos is surely able to make a minor adjustment to ensure that Joshua's battle would be won. But in truth... The details of this event are not so significant. What is significant is why it happened. Look back at verse 14. What does it say? There has been no day like it before or since when the the Lord heeded the voice of a man. You see, Joshua prayed to God and a most amazing answer was provided to him. An answer which ensured the preservation of the Gibeonites, those who had come in and were being attacked. Those of you who have been with us through this series may recall that Joshua is a type or a shadow or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, God instructs Israel by speaking through Joshua, 
just as God reveals himself to us through Jesus. Joshua then is a type or a picture or a shadow of Christ our prophet, as a prophet. Joshua leads his people, Israel, in their conquests, just as Jesus leads his church in their battles. Joshua then is a type of Christ, a picture of Christ as our king. And in the same way, here as he prays, Joshua is a type or picture of Jesus, who is our priest. Question 15 of our Westminster Confession tells us that Christ executes his role as our priest, firstly, by offering himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. But secondly, he executes his role as our priest by continually making intercession for us. In other words, Jesus is praying for us as members of his church. You see here, Joshua prays for the preservation of the Gibeonites by a most remarkable once-in-a-lifetime event. Isn't that a picture of what Christ is doing for his people even now? He is praying for us that we will be preserved by a once in a lifetime. Remarkable event. Christ died an atoning death on the cross as our substitute. And that's the whole basis on which Rahab could avoid punishment for her sin. It's the whole basis on which the Gibeonites could avoid punishment for theirs. It's the basis on which we can avoid punishment for our sin because Christ was punished in our place. But the wonderful thing is, Christ doesn't leave it there. Just as Joshua prayed to God to ensure the preservation of the Gibeonites, so to Joshua, our our, the, our Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, even now he prays for us to ensure our preservation. Do you remember what we read earlier in our first readings in Romans 8, verse 34? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. The Puritan Thomas Watson puts it like this. Christ, by his intercession, answers all the bills of indictment brought in against the elect. Do what they can, sin, and then Satan, accuse believers to God. And conscience accuses them to themselves. But Christ, by his intercession, answers all these accusations. 
Lord, he says, let the sinner be absolved from guilt. And in this this sense, he isn't called an advocate. Christ requires that the sinner be set free in the court. When God's justice opens the debt book, Christ opens the law book. Lord, he says, you are a just God. Here is the bloodhead. Therefore, in justice, give me a discharge for these distressed creatures. Friends, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, then take encouragement from Joshua's great prayer. For he is the type, the shadow, the picture who points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who even now secures our salvation, pleading our case as our advocate. And friends, he will not lose his case because the evidence of his own shed blood is absolutely irrefutable. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For your word is light unto our path. It shows us the way. And we thank you, O Lord God, that your word shows us things which we would not otherwise have any idea of. We thank you, Lord, for your word this morning that reminds us of our deep and dreadful sin. Your word which reminds us of the awful predicament in which we find ourselves. That after years of rebellion and turning against you, Lord, we face the real prospect of your just wrath for you're a holy God. But we thank you, Lord, too, that in your word you give us words of hope. For you point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that you point us to the one who is indeed our Redeemer, the one who died in the place of his children. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder, even this morning, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not leave it there. But even now he sits at the right hand of his Father, interceding for us, pleading our case, ensuring that our salvation indeed will be sure and our hope certain. We bless you, Lord God, for your goodness to us, goodness which is so undeserved. And from the depths of our hearts, we offer our thanks and our praise. Thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness with us through Times when we uh, stray from you, when our hearts grow cold, we thank you, Lord God, that you minister and tend to our needs. We thank you, Lord, for the provision 